February and it is still snowing here in Utah. Hello everyone and welcome to Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast. I'm your host, Tom Kelly. And a big welcome to Utah's own Pixie and the Partygrass Boys and thanks for kicking things off once again. Let's send a shout out to our sponsor, High West, Utah's first legal distillery since 1870. High West is passionate about crafting delicious and distinctive whiskeys and helping people appreciate whiskey all in the context of our home here in the American West. When you're in Utah, visit one of High West locations in Park City or nearby Wanship. And a big welcome to our episode sponsors. Thinking about skiing Alta? This season, experience Alta on a deeper level and enhance that feeling of time well spent by immersing yourself in the Alta community. And welcome to Powder Mountain, the most uncrowded area in the state with daily ticket limits, and now a new breakfast and opre at Bower Lodge at the bottom of the Powder Mountain Road. This week, Last Chair is exploring diversity on the mountain. Last year, Ski Utah debuted a new program designed to get skiers and riders of color past the hurdles of entry and up onto the mountain. Discover Winter has been a hugely successful program, drawing rave reviews from national leaders for its adult target market approach. Today, we're joined on Last Chair by Henry Rivers, a lifelong skier who is now the president of the National Brotherhood of Skiers, which is celebrating his 50th anniversary this season. Rivers grew up in New York, taught himself to ski, and has now extended that to his entire family. He took over the helm of the Brotherhood just prior to COVID and the 2020 Black Lives Matter awakening. Since then, he has been an engaged voice of the black skiing community as the resort industry looks for a pathway to diversification. In our interview, Henry touches on the history of the National Brotherhood, its nonprofit mission to help developing black athletes, and how Ski Utah's unique approach to its Discover Winter program may be a model for others. Now let's join Henry Rivers, an important voice in the diversification efforts of skiing and riding. And today, last year, is honored to be joined by Henry Rivers, the president of the National Brotherhood of Skiers. And Henry, I know you are frantically packing because as we are recording this podcast, you're getting ready for the 50th anniversary of the Brotherhood with Black Summit coming up in Colorado. So I imagine you are going crazy right now. Yes, I am. And Tom, thank you so much for inviting us to your program. Well, happy to have you on. Hey, just, I know, getting ready for for Black Summit, you're probably like I was a few weeks ago on my uh, trip to Europe. How many pairs of skis are you taking with you? Well, I started out, I said, you know what? I'm going to go light. I'm only carrying one pair of skis. Right now, My I just zipped my ski bag. I've got four pairs of skis in there. So that one pair of skis didn't work out too well. I tried to take one pair to Europe, and and even one pair is clumsy to haul around trains. But at the end of the day, I'm wishing I would have brought two. So I think you're going to be in good shape. Of course, there's been phenomenal snow out here this winter. Maybe you'll get a groomer day here and there. But man, I tell you, there's a lot of snow in the Rockies. Excellent to hear. So give us a little bit on your background in skiing. Uh, what we're, we're going to cover a lot of territory in this interview and really appreciate all you've done for the sport and for a lot of us to get us to better understand how we can be more welcoming as a sport to black skiers. You grew up in New York City, and why don't you kind of walk us through how you got involved in the sport a few years back? Sure, sure. Uh, a few years back, yes. I, I, I grew up in Jamaica, Queens, in New York. 
And around 10 years old, my parents, they moved us up upstate New York. So we moved to a little town called Big Indian in the Catskills. And about six miles away was Bel Air Mountain. 10 miles to uh, the east was Phoenicia Ski Center. So, you know, back then in the late 60s and early 70s, we got tons of snow. So by Thanksgiving, you had three feet of snow outside. Either you stay inside from Thanksgiving to March, or you find a way to make all that snow out there your friend. I found a pair of skis in the attic of my parents' hotel and boots and the poles. I mean, they were the big bamboo, big bamboo poles with the big baskets on them, everything. So I tried them on and they all fit. That was part one. So now I have to learn how to ski. I had no clue what I was doing. I figured out how to lace them up and, and strap in. They were cable bindings. I would put them on and I would just push off and, and go straight down the hill until there was an obstacle. And whenever a tree popped up, I would just tip over and fall. So after a couple of, probably a, a good year doing that, just hiking the, the, the slopes around the house, I, I would just go down and, and keep trying to turn. And eventually I found that if I leaned over enough, the ski would actually turn. So, you know, then I, I, I realized, okay, I can turn these longs. They were over six feet long, whatever skis I was on. But that's how I started turning. And, and then I said, okay. Then I got to, I go to the hills. I went to Phoenicia Ski Center and I'd follow behind the other kids. Mind you, there weren't too many people of color on the hill at all. One or two, if that. But following behind the other kids, watching them ski, I tried to emulate what they were doing. And that's how I learned how to start to turn and 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 use the terrain to help me. So by the time I was 14, I tried out for my high school ski team. I was number 15, got in. I was the last kid to be selected to the team, but I made the team. And I tell you right now, if I hadn't made the team, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. I, I can almost guarantee you that because I probably would have had no desire to continue skiing. So I make the team, and now I'm on a team with 14 kids that ski really well. And and skiing with them and training and, and getting coaching, that propelled my skiing immensely. But it also created this desire within me to want to get better at something that you can never master. I don't care who you are. You will never be better than the mountain, you know? But I, I, I it just lit a fire and desire to want to ski and to continue to ski and to be in the outdoors. That's pretty much my background, how I got started with skiing. I love that. You can never be better than the mountain. That is a, that is a words for skiers to live by. Henry, let's go back though. When you first get started, you're 10, 11, 12 years old. You've found this pair of skis, boots and poles up in the attic of the hotel. And what did your family think of this? I mean, this was really a pretty, pretty new thing. They really didn't think about it. Okay. That was just him going off doing his thing. You know, oh, he's off on another adventure. You know, the sun came up, he was out the door, the sun set, and I was coming back in. And it, it's funny, I was telling my wife the other day, I, I was looking at a, a bread wrapper, the, the plastic bag that bread comes in. That's what I used to put on over my socks before I put them into the ski boots, because so much water came in and you froze. It was so much colder then than it is now. So you did whatever you could to uh, try to brave the elements. But my family, 
you know, my sister, my youngest sister, she came out once or twice, but she really didn't like skiing. And she would just sit and be a cheerleader and say, I don't want to do this. I'm going home. But none of them really took to skiing. They respected my desire to want to learn to ski so much that I, my, my older sister, when she was away at college, found, saw these gloves that were, I guess they were marketed as the best ski gloves ever. She buys them and sends them home. I would dry those gloves every day and put them up on a mantle. And everyone in my family knew never touch Henry's ski gloves. Just leave him alone. That's his cherished possession. And, and he lives by those, you know, and that's, that's how maintaining my ski equipment was for the, from that point to this point. You know, my ski gear is like hands off, don't touch it, you know, leave it alone and, and, and just let it be. So that's, you know, I, I wish that more of my younger, my immediate family had gotten involved with skiing. My oldest sister skied a little bit, but never really took to it. I guess back then it was very cold. Nobody, we didn't have the technology in the outerwear that we have now, you know, and you know that. Back then, you know, you had to layer up and we had wool, you got wet, you froze, you know, but now the technology is so advanced that you can stay out for hours with no problem. There's no, no issue with the weather. now. Yeah, it's really evolved a lot. I grew up in the Midwest, so I definitely know cold. I live out in Park City, Utah now, where I, I must say it was below zero today, but that really is pretty rare. When you're on the high school team, Henry, and you're up against all of these other athletes, I'm going to assume you were probably the only athlete of color on the team, right? That's a very fair assessment. I was the only one on my, at, during my time, I was the only black kid in, in the UCAL conference, Ulster County. Tell us a little bit about what that was like. I mean, did you think about that? Was that something that you really noticed or was that just kind of a part of your life? That was part of life. That's part of the American society. In most areas, if you're outside of an urban community, you're usually one of the only persons of color. Now you ratchet that up a little bit more and you're in a community, a mountainous community, you're definitely one of the only people of color. I was fortunate. There was a, a, a guy a couple of years ahead of me in high school, his name was Lionel Heron. He was such a phenomenal skier. And I'm telling you, I, as a kid, I, my eyes would be wide open. I'd watch this guy and he was a big guy. He was over six feet tall. He was a, at least 300 pounds. And this guy could actually do a flip back in the late sixties, early seventies. He'd come off something and do a flip and land it. And I was just like, wow. If I could only be as good a skier as Lionel one day. But again, he was about five years ahead of me. But other than Lionel, there were there were maybe one or two other people of color that skied. But we never really skied at the same time on the same mountains. So you didn't cross paths too much. That, you know, you ask how, how it felt or whatever. It, it really didn't have any different feeling because that was your your society at that time that was the community you were in so just because we're skiing now it's still the same community you were the only person of color you were looked at a little differently of course and and people had these little microaggressions they they would say but you know what it really you you develop a thick skin because just living life was hard enough you know now you're you're in the into the ski world 
into their environment. And it's the same thing. It was the same thing. So you dealt with it the same way. You continued that passion off the high school team and and as you started to form your own family. And one of the things that's interesting is you've, you have really conveyed the sport onto your family now. When my wife and I got married, I told her she knew that I, I was an avid skier. Um, and I explained to her, you know, what are we going to do? I said, I, I, would, I would love you and I want you to be with me. 12 months out of the year. I said, but if you don't ski, I said, we're only going to see each other six months out of the year. I said, because for six months, I'm going to be chasing snow all over the United States. So my wife agreed. She said, you know what? I, I want to try it. And she learned how to ski. And since learning how to ski, she became a PSI certified instructor, a USSA coach. And she was part of the reason why we said, okay, let's raise our kids in as a ski family and develop a ski pedigree and hopefully they'll buy in. I did not want to push this on them though, because you know with any sport, if you push the kids too hard, they're going to rebel or they're going to push back and they're going to walk away from it. So I knew it was a thin line not to push them too hard, but to expose them enough. And fortunately, our oldest daughter really doesn't like skiing that much, but our triplets love it. They're all second-year U16 racers now. Two are at Holderness, one's at Gould, and they're doing great. How did you get the triplets on snow? Did that happen in unison? Oh, yeah. Everything with them happened in unison. You should have seen us going through airports back then when they were first born. It was a sight. Triple stroller running to the gates. Don't let them have to be changed. You know, it's like, oh, my God, what do we do now? But you know, they, they started out on the magic carpet. We started, well, actually just on a carpet, walking up the carpet and skiing down. They were all pretty athletic. My wife was a, a, a track runner, so she, she's been very athletic her whole life. So they all took to it. We wanted to make sure we acclimated them slowly so they would get accustomed to the cold. Because what I've seen as an as a instructor and a coach, the young kids that don't take to it are the ones that are always cold. So the parents will send them out in, in inadequate layering or whatever. So they're like, I don't want to do this. So you just make sure that they acclimate, they get used to it, and they have fun. If you, got, if you have enough things for them to do on the snow, not just skiing, they'll, they'll gravitate to it. And now it's second nature to them. They, I don't think they would know what to do in the winter. If there was no skiing. So the triplets are racers, huh? Yeah. Great. I bet you love that. Cause you, you still are a racer. Ah, I, you know, I'm a retired wannabe racer. Put it that way. I raced in high school, a little bit of masters after, after, after college, cause college, I didn't ski much, but after college, I, I dabbled a little bit. I'm okay. You know, I'm not, I'm nothing great. Nothing to write home about, but I, you know, I can hold my own. But you love getting in a NASCAR course, I imagine. Of course. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? You know. You'll do that out at the summit, right? Of course. Well, I have to. I'm the president. You know? <laughs> what, what's it like not to have your president come down the course, you know? Absolutely. Hey, let's talk about the National Brotherhood. This is really quite an amazing organization. 50th anniversary this year. Give us a little uh, concept of the background that uh, Art Clay and Ben Finley brought when they got this whole thing going 50 years ago. You know, that is something that I think about often 
1973-1972, these two gentlemen decided to get together and form a bond and and bring and find as many black ski clubs as they could across the United States and gather them and get them together to uh, ski together. They wanted to ski together for several reasons, camaraderie, definitely, security, you know, because as we were talking, I'd be the only black kid on the mountain here, upstate New York. You can imagine that was the same thing that was happening out in Chicago. That was the same thing that was happening out in California, in Tahoe, in, in Colorado, you know? so. Getting together with a group of people that enjoy the same thing you do, that look the same as you do, tends to give you a little bit higher safety factor. And and then you wouldn't have to worry about some of the the rhetoric or some of the things that were said in your direction, because they wouldn't be said when you were there in numbers. So as a result of coming together and, and enjoying a sport and finding that Many black skiers were proficient skiers. It wasn't like a, a bunch of people skiing down, bumbling and falling. And, you know, they were quite proficient. And and after the ski community saw, they I think they accepted it more and more. Not to say that it's widely accepted today. It's still something that we're continuously working on. But. Back in 1973, they got the 13 clubs together and they figured the best place to have that was in Aspen. So they all met at Aspen, Colorado in 73 and they called it The Gathering. And they had about 355 members show up. And, you know, they decided maybe five years later that not just having a great party and everybody coming to ski, why don't we have a mission? We have all these folks coming here. Why don't we put together a mission that would continue the legacy of Blacks and skiing? So that mission developed and that became to identify, develop and support athletes of color that are gonna win international Olympic competitions representing the United States and to increase winter participation in snow sports. That became the mission. That became the goal, the driving force for our summits. Our summits are the annual gathering of all of our clubs across the country and the UK. We get together. We have a, a lot of races, party, gospel fest, social gatherings, barbecue on the hill, all sorts of things just to, just to bond and have a great week. And while we're doing that, we donate money to our Olympic scholarship fund called the OSF. And mind you now, the, the, the National Brotherhood of Skiers is a 100% volunteer 501c3 organization. We're a nonprofit organization. Everything that's done in this organization is done by volunteers. So we always need donations. We're always hoping that people can see the value of what we do and donate to our cause. So once we decided, or once they decided to come up with that mission, that's when we got a different drive. You know, we, we went from just partying and having fun on the hill to gathering funds to support young athletes of color so that we could promote them and get them to training, develop them into elite racers. 
Today, we have 23 athletes on our Olympic, on our Team NBS, and that's the most we've ever had. We, we sponsor them from anywhere from $1,000 to $12,000. Hopefully this year, our goal will be to, during that week-long celebration, which starts on Saturday, we're trying, our goal is to raise $500,000 in that week. So if your listening audience wants to help us reach that goal, we would definitely appreciate it. But that is the goal. If we can raise $500,000 in a week and then get our sponsors to match that, we'll be looking great for 23-24 supporting Team NBS. Hopefully we can get up to 30 athletes. I just want to expand on this a little bit because one of the things that has always struck me from having spent my career working with the U.S. ski team is the perseverance that NBS has had over the years in staying true to this mission and truly supporting these developing athletes. I mean, look at what you're looking to raise this year in your 50th anniversary. I mean, this is a mission that you guys have really dug your teeth into. Yes, we have. And and I want everybody to understand that, you know, excuse me, not many know that we've really reached our mission several times. But we haven't had an athlete of color on an Olympic podium, but that's the Michaela Schifrin end of, of the of the mission, you know. But all along, all through this journey, we've attained this mission. In 1984 or 1984, yes, Bonnie St. John went to the Olympics. She got a bronze medal in the Paralympic, and that was in Innsbruck, Austria. 2001, Andre Horton became the first African-American on the U.S. ski team. In 2006, Ralph Green made the Paralympic team, and he went on to three different Olympics. 06 in, in Turin, Italy, 2010 in Vancouver, 2014 in Sochi. Um, and he almost medaled in Sochi. Yeah, he was leading by over a second and he fell 10 gates shy of the finish line. But And then in 2010 as well, we had Errol Kerr, who was representing the country of Jamaica, but he was one of our athletes that we supported all along his training career, and he came in ninth in ski across. So we've really reached our, but we were still striving to place that African-American or that Black athlete on an Olympic podium. and Or actually, I would like to see one of our MBS athletes walk in the Olympic opening ceremony with, with Team USA. So we, we've gotten there. We're driven to keep going and finding and developing that elite athlete. Now, what are we doing? We've partnered up with the US ski team, and they're working diligently with us to help us try to help them as well. Because as you know, the pool that the U.S. ski team pulls their athletes from is predominantly rich white kids. And if we can open that up and bring in more athletes of color to give the United States and America the opportunity to train more athletes, we can definitely show more results in the form of medals. I think it would. It, it's only... It's the right step. It's the right way to go. We need to do that across the board and win the sports. I want to touch on one other thing with NBS before we take a quick show break. The the other element that has really struck me is that is the camaraderie. 
It's the brotherhood. It's everyone coming together. And you guys have a great time. You know, camaraderie is, if you write that and you look that up in the dictionary, you will see NBS. I came to the NBS in 1996. Now, I've always, prior to that, I'd skied primarily by myself or with friends of mine. So, you know, I might have two or three black friends that would say, okay, let's do this and let's go skiing. But I'd never skied with a group. In 1996, I went to Innsbruck, Austria on an MBS summit trip, and I I was exposed to about three to 500 people of color skiing, and and many of them skiing very well. I I was floored. I was I was shocked. I was happy. I was crying. I was like, wow, this this is unbelievable. I have never missed a summit since that day. And my story is the same story that you'll hear from 3,000 other NBS members. They will tell you there is so much more to coming to the summit than just hanging out. You're going to see people that you've met. I'm going to see people I met in 1996. You know, and they come every year just like I do. It is, it's more than that. It, it's a fellowship, it's camaraderie, it's a, it's a family, and it just grows. And once you get in and once our retention rate on our membership is like 70%, you know, people that become MBS members stay MBS members. They die in the MBS. That's really what happens. They, they are committed lifelong members of the MBS. We're with Henry Rivers, president of the National Brotherhood of Skiers, celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. We'll be right back on Last Chair, and when we do, we're going to talk about diversity in skiing, and in particular, the Discover Winter program of Ski Utah. We'll be right back. When you think about Alta, you think about snow, most in America this year. But there's so much more to Alta that makes your visit there time well spent. You can experience Alta on a deeper level and enhance that feeling of time well spent by immersing yourself in the Alta community. Local art, environment, cultural events as just a few examples. This season, create a memorable visit by joining the Ski with a Ranger program, saloon nights, listening to live local music, or attending unique community events like Mountain Film on Tour. Alta is not just a ski area. Many come for skiing only to discover a community. Join us in our Alta community this winter. Go to altacommunity.org for more information. That's altacommunity.org. Now let's get back to our interview with Henry Rivers. And we're back on Last Chair with Henry Rivers, the president of the National Brotherhood of Skiers. And Henry, I want to talk a little bit about diversity in skiing. And just as a preface, I think those of us who have worked in the industry for many years have always been cognizant of the fact that we are not a very diverse activity. Three years ago, during the Black Lives Matter uprisings in 2020, I think a lot of us started to pay more attention. And I would imagine that you, as the president of NBS, you probably got a lot of calls to during that period? Tom, it's, it's something. I was, since 96, I, I, I've worked through the organization of NBS from a club president to a, comp, a regional competition director, national competition director, executive vice president, and president, always keeping my eye on saying that I wanted to run the organization because I thought I could help. I got elected March 6th, 2020. 
March 11th, the world stopped. Everything shut down. This pandemic, they called it COVID-19. It shut the world down. So I looked at my wife and I said, wow, I really picked a great time to become president, huh? Everything stopped. March 25th, George Floyd gets murdered in the street and we all see this. My phone rang off the hook every single day from the ski industry. We got we had several large resorts write letters, several large manufacturers write letters in support of Black Lives Matter. So they were looking to the National Brotherhood of Skiers for guidance on how should they move forward in support or supporting human equality and to try to stop the racist system that that exists. So many letters were written, many letters were written well, and we got calls. I, I received tons of calls. How do I how do I support Black Lives Matter? How do I support human equality? So we were answering as many as we could. There were tons of podcasts. There were many interviews and gave our interpretation of what could possibly help the ski industry look at their lack of diversity and inclusivity throughout. As you, everyone is aware, you look at the ski industry and it's, it's you know, they say 87% of the, of the people that ski are, are white. And that's, I, I would say that's accurate. The other 13% are a mix of all different types of colors, Black, Asian, Latinx, you name it. But there is a huge disparity of inclusion within the sport. So we've been working, the National Brotherhood of Skiers has been working with many organizations trying to figure the right path to help make this industry much more inclusive. So I am so fortunate and glad that we got to meet with Raylene Davis from Ski Utah. They have a great program going on over there. And the difference, there's a lot of programs going on. You've got Share Winter, you've got Chill, you've got Shred, you've got all these different programs. But almost all of those programs are targeting one demographic. They're looking at young kids of color to bring them in. What I liked about Ski Utah they are targeting like the 20 plus year age. And that is ideal because some of those kids, I'm not, well, I'm calling them kids because they're much younger than me, but the 20 year olds, they're at that point now where they might start getting a little disposable income. And, and if they don't, the Ski Utah program gives them out of wear, gives them lessons, you know, and, and, and transportation to the mountain. And, and it's, I think that age demographic is, is pivotal. It's, you know, they can decide if they want to keep skiing and, or not keep, or not ski. And from what I understand with Ski Utah, their, their retention rate is pretty good. Yeah, it has been pretty amazing. As an example, this year, second year of the program called Discover Winter had over 500 applicants. They could only take 150, seven participating ski areas. And it really is a pretty turnkey package, as you said. But the uh, the decision, though, to focus on the adult population, I think that's a, that's a pretty unique approach, though, across the nation, isn't it? Definitely. Definitely. I'm, I'm glad you said it was Discover Winter. There, there, I like 
the segment of the population they're going after. Because that age group is not only going to continue skiing if they like it, but they're also going to invite their friends that can afford to ski or maybe or maybe if they can't afford to ski, at least get them smitten by the sport to the point where they'll find a way. Just like I did as a kid. I didn't have any money. I would do whatever I do, shovel drivers, whatever, to get five bucks for a lift ticket. So maybe they'll figure out how to continue skiing. But that's the right age, I think. It's a different, there are many different avenues to pursue. And I like the the angle that they're going after. Henry, earlier you had mentioned the retention rate. The rate for this program, 89% of last year's participants were back on the skis this year. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, you look at the retention rate of skiers in the ski industry and it's nowhere near that. It's probably a quarter of that. Their retention rates, what, 17 to 20 20% something in there, you know, so I like that. It's, 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 it's even better than our, the National Brotherhood of Skiers retention rate. So they're doing an amazing job. Let's dissect it a little bit. There's, there's so many different barriers, whether this is for people of color or anyone who's getting into the sport. There are so many barriers to entry. It's the transportation. It's the equipment, the education. Discover Winner has all of this checked off. I mean, all of these components are included. It really is a turnkey program. And then when you're finished with the program, if you've graduated out of the sessions, you get a Ski Utah Yeti Pass, which gives you usage at all the participating resorts. So it really, they seem to have checked all the boxes on this. They've done their homework and, and the program is going well. You know, I was fortunate that, that Raylene Davis had reached out and invited us out to watch the program and to look and be involved with one of the weekends. A couple of our members volunteered to assist as well as chaperones, going on the bus, helping them get ready, guiding them into the rental shops, getting them outfitted, and then watching them on the hill. So what they're doing, it's 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 hitting a different demographic. Again, I'm going to have to, I keep saying that because that's not what, what we've been doing in the past. All the other winter outreach programs, they're looking at small children, 8 to 18, which is ideal. We need them. But, you know, we never really focused, none of the programs have ever really focused on that, that 20-year-old plus population. And that's a good, you know, we don't want to lose them. So this is, this is great what they're doing. That's yeah, a great program, Discover Winner from Ski Utah. I, I want to go back to some of the educational programs you were involved with during the early days of Black Lives Matter in, in 2020. I was involved in a number of those through U.S. Ski and Snowboard. And, and I, th- I think one of the things that I learned anyways was maybe a deeper understanding of some of the let me call it tacit or passive discriminatory practices that that uh, that skiers of color may have encountered. And it, I think some of us, when we think of of racism, we think of things that are very overt. But some of the examples that I heard in these educational sessions were just treating black skiers differently. And I wonder if you can elaborate a little bit on that and some of the things that 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 you've seen at at resorts that hopefully are are improving now. You know, the first things that come out to me is you have a black skier or a group of black skiers that will come to a a ski area. White skiers will come to them and say, oh, you know, they'll be a little bit too overly helpful. Oh, let me show you how to put on boots. Oh, your your boot goes here into these little black things called bindings. And, And don't get me wrong. You know, if you've never been on skis, you do need some guidance. But just because they're 
just coming up onto the hill doesn't mean they've never skied before. So you get, you know, people that want to help them or or direct them. And sometimes it's a little bit too much. And that can be thought of as microaggressions that are, are unnecessary. What the other aspects that are quite prevalent or quite obvious, the the way this the the ski resorts are they're not really receptive or or inviting to anyone other than the white population. Now, you know, that can go from dining options, food menu options, music that you hear, artwork that you see, you know, all uh, many different things. And that's another thing that for Winter and Ski Utah have partnered up with Lamont Joseph White, which was which was great. So he is putting up his artwork, which is showing African-Americans and black skiers and riders on the snow, you know, so that's more inviting. So I come to the ski resort and I see a Lamont white poster. I'm like, okay, you know, this is not bad. So, you know, and that, that, that softens and, and, and opens you up more to an environment that you feel it's already strange because it's cold. It's already strange, but now it feels a little warmer. And it says, okay, you're, you know, we, we want you to come here. Yeah. He's, he's been a real difference maker for us. We had him on the last chair podcast two years ago, and he did a wonderful display at the ski Utah office and also at snowbird. And it, it has been fascinating to look at his art and see how he portrays a, a different approach to, to skiing and snow. And he's a snowboarder, right? Right. Good snowboarder too. A really good snowboarder. You know, it's kind of funny. We were, I was over in Austria in, in mid-January and just going through social media. And I looked on his, I looked on his Facebook feed one day and there he was. He was at the same resort I was at. Unfortunately, he was leaving that day. So we didn't get a chance to connect, but yeah, he's, he's certainly been a real difference maker. Before we close out, Henry, just looking ahead for NBS, actually how much longer in your term as president? I have one more year. My presidency runs until 2024, so I will be doing one more summit. And, you know, hopefully I, I've made an impact. Hopefully we've, we've helped people understand the, the, the devotion, the desire, the dedication of our membership, of our board, what we're trying to achieve in the industry, the relationships we're setting up with many different three partners and and that's my goal to get the recognition and the respect that the MBS has earned and to be a resource for the industry so that they can battle and try to knock down some of the racist systemic racism that's in there as well as bringing more inclusion into all ranks of the industry from from management down to ski instruction you know, but and understand if the if a person of color comes to a mountain and they see or they interact with a VP of, of marketing that is black or or the hospitality manager is is Asian, you know, you see this and you're like, okay, you know, they are making they are trying to make a change and they're trying to open up the industry for everyone. You know, and there is so much to gain by being inclusive. You know, if you're inclusive, it's just going to go downstream to all of your your potential customers, you know, and those customers will become employees and those employees will become CEOs. 
you know? So that's what we really are trying to help the industry accomplish. Well, Henry, there's no question that you have made an impact yourself and with your organization over the last few years and, frankly, over the last 50. We're going to close out the podcast with our Fresh Track section. i got a few closing questions for you. And the first one, did you have a sport hero or even a ski hero when you were growing up as a young boy in New York State? My sport hero, I never really had any idols or anything like that, but the guy that I admired was Jim Brown. I, I admired him for his football and lacrosse skills. He was he was amazing. You know, skiing wise, just like everybody else. I love John Claude Keeley. You know, everybody did back in 68. We were all in awe. And then later on, I, I guess Hank Cashua was somebody I, I liked because he was a New Yorker. <laughs> but he was a great skier. There were many of them. Henry, do you have a favorite Utah ski run or resort? You know, I'm gonna have to tell you I've skied probably about five or six or seven resorts in Utah. The one that sticks out the most is, I, and I can't tell you the run, but it's in the canyons and it was, it's a back bowl. It was the first, one of the very first times I took my wife powder skiing and we were in these back bowls and I'm telling you, we were in there for hours. <laughs> I should have never taken it there. But she learned. She learned and she loves it now. But it was the back bowls of the canyon. We had we had a, a great experience back there. I loved it. That's great. You know, Lamont Joseph White also called out the same area when I asked him this question really? two years ago. Yeah. So wow. <laughs> I'll have to compare notes. Henry, what's the perfect opera afternoon for you after a great day on the mountain? Oh God. You know, it would have to be in Spain, actually, where I could get a nice lemon-infused beer and some tapas and, and just look at the mountain and, and listen to music, you know? I love it. Here in the U.S., a great cold beer and some great music, and, and I get to talk who skied it better. <laughs> Love it. Love it. I'm sure at, at the at the summit, you're going to have a lot of that conversation. A famous skier or famous person that you've skied with? Uh, Bodie Miller. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Ralph Green. <laughs> That's uh, another good one. Yeah. Oh, God. Quite a few, you know, uh, Jonathan Ballou, you know, I, you know, there's been, I've been fortunate that, you know, I've had a lot of great skiers let me ski with them. <laughs> and so they could, they could teach me a few things, but it's been great. Love it. Deb Armstrong. I got to put Deb Armstrong out there. Deb Armstrong's another good one. I, I was just going to go back to Ralph Green. I hosted a, a virtual reality event during the Beijing Olympics. Ralph Green was one of our athlete guests. And it was one of these amazing things. You put the Oculus headsets on and we had a couple of great athletes. We had Ralph Green. I think we had Shannon Barkey, the yeah, freestyle skier in that yeah. one, and Dan Jansen, the speed skater. And we had all these people in, I don't know where they all were, but it was like we were all together. But Ralph was a real hit. Oh Yeah, Ralph was a great guy. And then last question, groomers, bumps, or powder? Okay. It'll be groomers, powder, bumps, only because my knees are much older now. I love powder, but I'm on the East Coast. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm groomer trained. 
Well, I love your attitude on that. I'm becoming more and more of a groomer guy too, because I. But we don't get those days out here in the West anymore. So, Henry Rivers, president of the National Brotherhood of Skiers, thank you so much for joining us. We wish you all the best at the NBS Summit coming up in the next couple of weeks. Well, thank you so much for having us, Tom. And please let your listeners know the NBS is a nonprofit 501c3 organization. Anyone that would like to help support our mission, please go to our website and donate, nbs.org. Love it, Henry. And by the way, listeners, we're going to put links on the website, so just go to skiutah.com. Henry Rivers, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tom. Pleasure. Thanks to Henry Rivers for taking time from packing to attend the annual Black Summit to speak with us on Last Chair. If you want to learn more about the National Brotherhood or to support its initiatives to help young black ski and snowboard athletes, go to nbs.org. That's nbs.org. And before we go, I want to tell you about a secret gem here in Utah, Powder Mountain. Known as one of the most uncrowded resorts in the state, Powder Mountain will continue to limit the number of tickets sold daily to ensure a genuine, uncrowded experience on the mountain. And new this winter season, Powder Mountain is offering breakfast and opre at Bauer Lodge, conveniently located at the bottom of the Powder Mountain Road, just four miles from the resort base. The breakfast offering will range from grab-and-go items to delicious, freshly made breakfast sandwiches and burritos. Also, Daily Rise Coffee Roasters will offer a plethora of delicious drinks and will be open seven days a week from 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. The Opera at Bauer Lodge will be offering an elevated food experience, cocktails, and live music Thursday to Sunday. And if you want a little diversity from skiing, check out the Powder Mountain Adventure Center offering guided snowmobile tours for guests who need a rest day or maybe you're just not into skiing or snowboarding. Check out more about Pow Mau at powdermountain.com. That's powdermountain.com. The Ski Utah Last Chair podcast is brought to you by High West Distillery. Follow our whiskey adventure on all social media platforms at Drink High West. And remember, sip responsibly. High West Whiskey, 46% alcohol by volume. High West Distillery in Park City, Utah. We have a great season going with Last Chair. Did you catch the backcountry segment with Drew Hardesty or the insightful podcast on the new Salt Lake City International Airport? If not, check them out today. And if you like the Last Chair podcast, please share it with a friend and leave us a review. And make sure to subscribe to get every episode of Last Chair delivered directly to you. Thanks for joining us on Last Chair. To close it out again, let's welcome our friends Pixie and the Party Grass Boys. I'm Tom Kelly for Last Chair, presented by High West. Have fun. It is a great day to ski. Oh!